This is a KSHSAA production. First down from the 17 is where they mark it officially. Here's Hancock breaks back at the 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Jaden. Down to the other end, misses, shot won't go up the gun, and Eudora comes from way behind and goes crazy. Welcome back to the third installment of the KSHSAA podcast. It is October 2nd, 2014. Hope you all are doing well. A little preview of the show to come. Uh, it is cross-country season, so we thought we'd give it a little running flavor of the for this episode. Uh, we're going to talk to Steve Heffernan, who is the assistant principal and cross-country coach from Lawrence Free State, and kind of get his take on what Life is like on Rimrock Farm, where we host uh, the state cross-country meet for 6A, 5A, and 3A. Then we'll talk to Fran Martin, a cross-country administrator here in the office. And then we'll sit down with the executive director of the KSHSAA, Gary Musselman, to talk a little Governance 101. Looking back on some events that have happened in part of KSHSAA, recently released the classifications for the 2014-15 school year. A little bit about that process. We have 354 member high schools, and Wichita Northeast Magnet School is an unclassified member school, so they do not receive a classification. What happens is the school administrator will go in on on the count day, which was September 22nd this year, and put in their, their numbers for freshmen through seniors. And this will go in for every activity except for football. Um, so wherever their no- enrollment falls is how they'll fall in the classification 6A through 1A. Once that number is in our database, we go through and check, double check, triple check. Mark Lentz does most of the groundwork and the grunt work for classifications here in the office. And so he'll double check that, like I said. And then once we we feel like everything's in the right order that it should be based on what the school sent us, we can release these classifications. Uh, We had 23 schools switch classifications from the previous year. And in those schools, just to kind of give you an idea, the range for Wichita West switching from 5A now will be 6A. They have 1,336 students. And then the smallest of those schools that switched classification was Pleasanton, and they are at 116. So that's a little insight on the process for the classification system here in Kansas and how we get that into our office and then back out to to everybody else here in the state. Looking ahead on the calendar, we have Regional Girls Tennis, uh, October 10th and 11th. That's our kind of our first postseason event here for these high schoolers as the fall season continues to move on and eventually will be wrapped up uh, for football in November. Regional and sub-state assignments have been released for volleyball, cross-country, tennis, and golf uh, for these fall sports. Go on our website to find those and see where your school will be going for the step before the state tournament. All right, to get going here, we're going to talk about some cross-country like we mentioned earlier. And we wanted to sit down with Steve Heffernan, uh, who is our manager for the 6A, 3A, and 5A state cross-country meet at Rimrock from in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, we wanted to see what his insight was of the legendary course that is Rimrock and to get his ideas of the relationship and the work that goes on at Rimrock and how Bob Timmons kind of got that all started out over there in Lawrence. Okay, Steve Heffernan joins us today on the podcast, and Steve is the assistant principal and cross-country coach at Lawrence Free State High School. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, you're welcome. I look forward to, uh, to talking with you and share a little bit about Rimrock and our cross-country groups. And, and as we get going here with Rimrock, we, we know that it was a large – a foundation was set upon, you know, a legendary coach and Bob Timmons, who uh, 24 years at KU, uh, four national championships, and that upon many accolades at uh, of the high school ranks with Emporia, Wichita West, Wichita East, and even retiring, at, and then going back to the high school ranks at Baldwin. When we talk about Rimrock and, and just the nature of of the course and, and the history behind it. Steve, give us your relationship with Bob and how that kind of got started and intertwined with his his coaching career and, and you being at KU and, and what this means to you having to take care and, and host tournaments at Rimrock. Sure. Um, I came to KU in 1986, and Coach Timmons uh, recruited me at that time. And uh, I really wanted to run. I didn't have any idea that Rimrock Farm existed. When I came down on my recruiting trip, uh, I think that was, we were out at Rimrock within about six hours of our of the start of the entire event. Um, and I really, really liked it at that point. I didn't have any idea what it would lead to down the road, but uh, when I look past since 1986, I have uh, worked on Rimrock in the summers continuously with the exception of three years that we spent in Wichita. And many of those summers were spent with Coach Timmons and hearing what his visions were and his passions were for Rimrock. And then I already had a fondness for it. But as we would continue to work on until the point where he retired from Rimrock, um, I started to pick up some of the same drive and passion he had for the place. And his intentions were always to provide a first-class venue uh, for runners and specifically kids from Kansas, the University of Kansas and high school kids, um, because he felt like they didn't always get a lot of attention and appreciation and he wanted to let them know this is a place specifically meant for them. And so since then, um, the meets have expanded as the popularity of Rimrock has grown. And I know they started off in the 80s with maybe one or two small meets. And when we moved out there nine years ago, there are about three or four meets. And if I remember right, this year there are almost 10 events out there between the high school, the college, and some of the community events that go on. And just for folks that don't know, Steve and his family live on the course. They live on Rimrock Course, and it, the farm out there is is immaculate. Uh, I, I highly encourage everybody to go out there and watch a race so you can see the course, uh, how the the landscape is how perfectly is put together. So, Steve, give me the, give me an example of the workload that kind of goes into taking care of Rimrock. Well, a few years ago, um, we were going through some things and trying to give some sort of idea of the calculations, what amount of time that goes on out there. But for us, it's a it's a passion. I have family members who come out and help, and we estimate that any given year it's five to 600 hours worth of work, and that's regardless of the meets that we go on out there because it's a lot like a park. Uh, years ago when we had the um, AAU National Championships or uh, um, with that, the group that came out said, well, this isn't a farm, it's a park, and that's probably a better description of it. But just like any place, there's a lot of mowing, there's a lot of weed eating, there's a lot of spreading mulch. We spread a semi-trailer load of mulch every year, and it washes away through the season, so we do it again the next year. And it really is a lot of just kind of bare-knuckle work. But in the end, when you get up and look around and you look at the valleys and the different views from Rimrock, um, it, it reminds me that it's a really beautiful place. Coming out of Nebraska, central Nebraska, I would never have guessed that Rimrock would look the way it did when we got there, and we just simply each year try to 
add a little improvement to it and see if we can continue on with Coach Timmons' uh, ideas because he didn't want it just to exist as was. He wanted someone to be out there and continue to help improve it, and, and so we try to keep that going. And if we look back at the the people that have have ran on this course, uh, we people see people like a uh, John Lawson or even a Jim Ryan or a Christy Kloster. Um, do you have a a memory that or a personal memory, even maybe it's a family memory of of someone a uh, meet or a, a a run that was hosted at Rimrock that sticks out in your mind? I think right now probably the the most uh, vivid memory I have was watching um, the 1998 NCAA championships out there. And I was driving the lead vehicle, but so I, I didn't get to see a lot of the race, but I did get some feels of what was going on. And I, there's one particular uh, challenge to Rimrock, and it's our hills. And we have an upper field and we have a lower field. And I wish I could tell you what the elevation and feet were between the lower field and upper field, but it's it's significant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I remember Adam Goucher winning the national championship because of the, the 10K they ran that day. He had, and he put this in a book that would come out later on, but he said, I was going to run that particular mile from the bottom field to the upper field as hard as I could, and if someone was with me, um, then then I would just try to figure out what to do next. And I believe that was the fastest mile recorded on the course that day was the mile that he ran from the lower field to the upper field. And it was courageous because once he got up to the top, he still had some racing to do. So <laughs> I do remember that being very impressive, and he held on. and. And he, he even in the book mentioned the gator got dust in his face, so I guess I'm a little bit famous uh, for <laughs> for creating some challenge for him. Well, and we look. I remember the first time I went out there, uh, a friend Martin took me out there, and we just kind of toured the course. Um, and and she said, I bet Steve's here somewhere. And she go, he goes, she says, I bet he, I bet he's mowing somewhere. And sure enough, we turned the corner, just going out back by the cabin, and there you were mowing. So. Uh, I know you have a lot of time put into that that course. Yeah, we do. And again, you know, it really is a passion. I know we have a lot of people who come out and help and volunteer, but um, to stay out there and keep doing that kind of thing is is only because we really love it. Because it it is a it is a challenge. But just this weekend, uh, you know, the reason that we do it is that when kids come out there for the first time, or they finish a race out there for the first time, um, they share those feelings and those memories last a, a lifetime for them. And I, I really do think that's what Coach Timmons was trying to do for them is, is create something that was meaningful for them, and, and I think he has done that. So tell me about uh, your season with the with Free State here. What, what's the cross-country team looking like? Well, we knew we'd have some pretty strong teams this year. The girls are coming back off of the state championship last year, and, and we've actually had a couple girls who've been on the team for quite a while responding and helped fill some spots that seniors left open last year. And so they're going to have a chance to compete for a state title again. And on the guys' side, uh, this was uh, Free State until four years ago didn't have freshmen in the building. And so we didn't get to have four years of kids run with us very often. It was the exception, not the rule. And this year we've got a senior class that has done the running for four years, and they're also going to be up there probably in the top five at the state meet. And any given day, some special things can happen. So we're real blessed this year to have two real strong teams and deep teams too. We're, We're a big squad with close to 90 kids. So that makes it a lot of fun as well. Well, we thank Steve for joining us. He's very busy with his roles in the school as assistant principal and, and, and the activity side with cross country and also obviously taking care of, of Rimrock like we've stated. Well, Steve, you got a, what, a month left of the cross country season. I, I know we'll see you at Rimrock on October 31st when state comes. Oh, we're looking forward to it, and it'll be a fun time for everybody. All right, thank you. 
I encourage those that haven't seen a race at Rimrock to do so. There's plenty of opportunities and some really high caliber races going on there this year with the state cross country meet and the Big 12 championship meet going on. And to talk about those state championship meets, we brought in Fran Martin to discuss some cross country items. All right, we're joined now with Fran Martin of the Kansas State High School Activity Association staff. Uh, Fran, thanks for joining us and kind of introduce, introduce yourself and what you what you do here in the office. Well, Jeremy, I'm very happy to be able to be a part of your podcast. I think this is a great way to relate to many of our stu- school students and fans, and uh, so I'm really glad that we've started doing these. Uh, I'm, I've been, this is my 10th year in the office. I'm responsible for cross-country uh, boys and girls basketball, softball, and then I deal a lot with the officials in our recruiting process with the officials. Yeah, and Fran, we the reason we have you on there at this time of year is because we got cross country going on right now. We just talked to Steve Heffernan, who was our state manager for at Rimrock for our state cross country with 6A, 5A, and 3A. Uh, kind of explain your relationship with Steve and what he does for us there. Uh, Steve's been a wonderful person to work with at at Lawrence Free State High School, and and I know he gets a lot of support from the running club there and also from the other administrators and and teachers and staff at Lawrence Free State. But uh, Steve does the majority of the work in setting up and getting all the people lined up for our state meet at Rimrock. Uh, Steve has a little bit of a unique relationship, which I'm sure he told you about, that um, he actually lives on the farm and is the caretaker for the farm and Therefore, he has a lot of pride in it. Um, he's done a lot of work with bringing in some of the new silhouettes and working with University of Kansas to do that. And um, the changes in the parking for the bus parking, those are really all ideas that Steve has had after living out there for quite a few years and, and running our state meet for longer than I've been here. Um, but he's just been wonderful to work with for us. Yeah, he can't ever use the excuse that he has to run home real quick, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's right there. We we can pretty much find him. And, yeah. and his family is wonderful. You know, it's not just Steve. His wife is out there and his kids are out there. They're all out there, um, not only on our state meet day, but basically anytime there is a meet out there, whether it's another high school meet or it's a college meet or an NAIA meet, uh, the junior colleges run out there. They're they're there and uh, very committed to that farm and to Coach Bob Timmons, uh, who Steve worked with at KU and ran for. Yeah, and staying on the topic of, of Rimrock and, and the 6A, 5A, and 3A state cross-country meet, uh, there's been some changes to the schedule this year. Uh, kind of tell us the, the thought process there and the details involved. Well, obviously, you know, we'd love to be able to run it on Saturday like we always do, but that property also belongs to the University of Kansas Athletics, and this is the year for Kansas to host the Big 12 meet, and we're very pleased about that. I know they'll have a lot of great runners there, uh, but there was no way to run a Big 12 meet and the Kansas State High School Activities Association six races on the same day. So we've looked at a variety of options uh, including moving the meet, um, trying to work it both on the same day, uh, and just found that for both entities to be able to have the kind of experience they want for their constituents, um, we needed to change dates. So we're going to run on Friday. Um, it, it'll be, you know, we'll start on Friday morning and run our six races, be out of there in time because the Big 12 teams, by their rules, have to have time to practice on the course. Uh, so, of course, we're hoping for a beautiful day and no mud issues because that will cause some problems for the, the for the Big 12 meet the next day. Um, we'll have to do a few things a little bit different with parking because uh, the Big 12's course actually goes through part of the parking that we had on the east side of the road. So 
We've worked with some neighbors there. We feel good about that. We'll be able to park some of our team vans and um, in different places. And, and the buses obviously will go along the road, and hopefully the spectators can go on the west side of the road. So we know it'll be a great event. We're just hoping for a great day. Uh, you know, of course, it's Halloween also, so I'm sure we'll have a lot of spooks out there with us. Yeah, and pay attention to our website for any updated information and details that you need to pass along to your, your grandparents, uh, parents, fans of that nature. And the other state championship with 1, 2A, and 4A uh, there at Wamigo Country Club uh, uh, will go on as scheduled? That, that, that meet will be at Wamigo Country Club on Saturday, November the 1st, and the time schedule obviously is on our website. Again, the people at the community of Wamigo completely embrace the state cross-country meet. We do have a new manager there this year. Uh, Mark Steffen had been there for years. He retired. Dennis Charbonneau is the new manager. I talked to him today. He knows he's already start, got to start getting ready for the, the cross, state cross-country meet um, November the 1st, but he's got a great coach in Rick Patton who's been very helpful over the years. So they do a wonderful job, and talk about a total community effort. It is there at Wamego and at the Wamego Country Club. We look forward to being there every year. Runners will get to state, but first they need to go qualify in a regional. Uh, we have, as you and I talk, classifications are getting counted right now. Um, so those will be up later on our website. Um, where are you at in the process of regionals uh, for this year? Well, we always try to, uh, before even before count day, ask some of the schools that have in indicated an interest in hosting, if they stay the same class, would they be interested in hosting this year? And um, you know, this year we've had quite a few people say, no, we're not ready to do that this year. So we, we're, after counts are complete and we know exactly who's on which classification, we're going to be scrambling to try and find some host sites uh, for several of our classes. That, you know, you, you count on the people who've been doing it for several years and sometimes they need a little bit of a break and we certainly understand that, uh, but we've got to find some other people who can step up and help them. So when as soon as classifications are out, we're going to start looking at who's in what class and who said they would host and who has a place that they can host, and, and we'll get letters out and hopefully be able to post our regionals. We're hoping by Wednesday, October the 1st, but that's going to be completely dependent on finding people to say yes. Yeah, so if you're thinking about it out there, go ahead and let us know, and, and we'll be happy to come run at your place. We're, we're looking for you. <laughs> um, one last thing before we, we let you go. Uh, Track and field and cross country, the rules book has changed a little bit with jewelry, but I, we want you to clear up something for us as far as the jewelry for this year in cross country will not change. In cross country, we operate under the 2014 rules. So the 2014 track and field and cross country rule book indicates that no jewelry is permitted during cross country meets. So we will continue this year, there will be no jewelry permitted. Um, as most of you are aware, in 2015, the spring of 2015's track season, track kids will be able to wear jewelry. Obviously, that's a little bit up to the coach's discretion. You certainly don't want anything on them that could be dangerous. Um, and then in the fall of 2015, cross country will follow suit with the same rule. Um, we did, you know, we did have a question also this week about, um, you know, if, if kids on a cross country team, you can have up to seven kids run. If one kid or two kids wanted to wear tights, does everybody have to wear tights underneath their underneath their shorts? And the answer to that is no. Uh, you know, if two kids want to wear tights, they have to be the same color. But the other kids on the team, if they don't want to wear tights, they don't have to. So uh, that was a question that came up out of a meet earlier this year, and, and so that just another point of clarification for people. 
And Fran is always updating announcements uh, each week on, on cross country and all of the sports uh, she's responsible for. So go on to the Arcacia.org and find that specific sport if you, if you want to stay up to date on any news and announcements. Uh, well, Fran, we'll look forward to talking to you as basketball will be here before you know it. So we'll see. We'll talk to you then. Just around the corner. So <laughs> thank you, Jeremy. We appreciate the University of Kansas and the Big 12 working closely with us to make sure both events can be held at Rimrock and go off without a hitch. Please uh, visit our website and go to the cross-country page for any announcements that might be surrounding the state meet, whether it is at Rimrock or Wamigo Country Club. We had our first board meeting on September 16th and the 17th. We had an executive board meeting for those two days and a board of directors meeting on the 17th. To better understand the governance structure of the KSHSAA, we wanted to sit down with Gary Musselman to kind of give us a governance 101. All right, we're joined for the first time on the Kesha podcast with the executive director of the KSHSAA, uh, Mr. Gary Musselman. Uh, Gary, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. Happy to, and I appreciate this new uh, this new method of communicating that we're working to develop for our schools. I think it's great. And this time of year, we always have some rules questions and maybe some rules uh, suggestions and changes that come from our schools or leagues. Um, so we wanted to sit down with Gary and have him kind of give us a, a governance 101 with the association. Happy to do that, Jeremy. And obviously, as you know, you were in attendance last week. We had two very lengthy days of board meetings. Our executive board meets six times each year, and our board of directors meets twice a year. Uh, that's basically defined in the bylaws of our association. And I think just at the outset, one point of clarification for people to understand that the KSHSAA, while we participate in a national rulemaking process for the playing rules of sports, baseball, basketball, football, volleyball, uh, we don't make those national high school playing rules here in Kansas. Uh, those are made through our national federation. So playing rules and the KSHSA rules of how we govern our sports and activities are two very separate and different things. And I think sometimes people kind of tend to roll them together. So I think it's important to try to clarify that for our listeners. Uh, you know, Governance 101, and, and having been a former social studies teacher, that's probably a good qualifier for the work that I've been doing here for the last 19 years as executive director and 27 years on the staff of this association. Um, we're a three-branch system of governance, just basically pure and simple, uh, just exactly like the federal government or the state of Kansas government. The body that probably is the most instrumental in making our rules is what you and I both know as the Board of Directors. Uh, our Board of Directors this year numbers 75 people uh, at any given time. Obviously, it's hard to get 75 people together. Last week at our Board of Director meeting, we had 67 of those 75 people in attendance. I think one member's wife was having a baby. Uh, we had several people with work-related conflicts and things of that nature. But that body is basically the legislative arm of the KSHSAA. And those 75 men and women come from all, literally all over the state. Uh, just to break it down, there are two members of the State Board of Education that serve on that board of directors. They're appointed from the 10 elected members by the state board. There are four members uh, we're kind of in a transition. There are four members that the governor's office of the state of Kansas will appoint. Uh, this is our first year under that new law. We have two gubernatorial appointees, and we have two 
other at-large appointees, those four people together come from each of the four congressional districts. So Kansas has a representative, you know, in that respect, a non-educator representative, if you will. We have eight elected Board of Education members from local school districts, which is the largest number of locally elected school board members on any governing body in any state high school association in the country. And frankly, we're proud of that. That's been that way since 1992. Uh, Those men and women who serve obviously are elected locally to be on the Board of Ed. And these are people who willingly step forward and put themselves up for election a second time from among the candidates in their congressional district to represent local school districts. There's a large school and a small school representative in each of our four congressional districts, so the math is obviously four congressional districts, two two from each, gives us eight local Board of Ed members. We have five members who are from the elect, what I would call the affiliate organizations. We have a representative that's chosen by the Kansas Athletic Coaches, uh, by the Kansas Interscholastic Athletic Administrators, which is frankly athletic directors. <clears throat> we have a Scholars Bowl coaches representative. We have an association of speech communications coaches, debate and speech coaches, uh, send a representative, and the Candace music educators. Then we have six junior high middle school uh, representatives, administrators from middle schools. Again, Kansas is somewhat unique, not the only state, but one of a very few that govern junior high and middle schools through this association, so it's only right that they would have a voice and a representative, you know, or six representatives, And then all of the others come from the elected representatives of the high school leagues. Uh, High school leagues are entitled to one representative, and for every additional 6,000 students, I believe it is, I'm trying to go from memory here, but every additional 6,000 students that a league has in their combined enrollment, they're entitled to a second, a third, or a fourth representative. So some leagues, the largest enrollment leagues, uh, Sunflower League, for example, would have four voting representatives. So in that sense, every league is represented, but there's also a factor to give consideration to the fact that schools serving large numbers of students have a little bit more representation. So it's very much a balance. It's somewhat like you know, the balance between the House and the Senate in the United States federal governance model. So that body changes rules in our handbook. They would make changes to our seasons of sport. Or if we were to add to or reduce the numbers of games, or when we'd start practice, or when we would permit schools to go in-state or how far out of state, and just, you know, all of those things. By the way, our handbook, uh, as most people probably know, is available to the public through our website. There's nothing at all that's held back. There's nothing secret. Uh, They can go to the KSHSA website. They can look at the KSHSA links column and simply click on handbook, and they have the entire document, which our schools use as their guidebook to follow and hopefully uh, make their decisions about how they administer their programs. Um, that's that's the one branch. You know, the second branch is out of that group of seventy-five men and women. Uh, they select a. It can it can vary from as few as nine right now to as many as as thirteen members uh, to serve as an executive committee. That executive board meets six times annually, and they basically are the policy making body. They would take the basic handbook rule and establish whatever the interpretation might be. 
of how we're going to execute or carry out those rules, uh, hence the name, the executive board. Uh, next year, that, that body will grow. Two of the governor's appointees will serve on that body as well. So it'll be anywhere from potentially 9 to 14, 15 members. Uh, the reason that there's some fluctuation there is there is, in our bylaw, an accommodation for at-large representation. Uh, the basic board starts with one for each of the six high school classifications. You have either, you know, a principal, a superintendent, an educator who represents the six classes. There's a junior high middle school rep is seven. There's a state board of ed rep is eight, and there's a local board of ed rep is nine. And now looking at that group, if there's a need for diversity based on gender, for example, if there wouldn't be a female representative in that group I just listed, uh, there would be... We'd reach into the board of directors, and out of that pool of people, we would elect someone to be a representative, an at-large one-year representative, uh, so that there was female representation, or male, if we didn't have any males. Uh, the other thing we look at is we look to see if there is ethnicity, and we have a bylaw that describes ethnic categories. If we had minority representation or lacked minority representation, we'd, we'd choose a, an at-large member to fill that void, and also a superintendent. It's not unusual for superintendents to be a little bit less directly involved with the association given the nature of their responsibilities. We deal mostly with principals and assistant principal, athletic directors, activity directors, but uh, we want to be certain we have a superintendent on our board, so that's the way we accomplish that. So the executive board meets six times yearly. They work directly with me uh, and the staff of the association who obviously in the chain of command work under my supervision and control and we're all accountable through to the executive board. The third body which we don't really frequently hear much about is what we would consider kind of our judicial branch. It is the appeals board and the appeals board quite honestly meets on call. They have no regularly scheduled meetings. This is defined the, their structure, their membership of eight people, four our school administrators, one from each of the the classifications of high school, there's a 6-5A person, a 4-3, and a 2-1A, and then a middle junior high. So that's four either principals or superintendents. The other four members are local elected Board of Ed members, and they again put themselves forward willing to serve. None of the appeal board members can be people from the executive board or the board of directors. They are a completely separate independent group of those other two boards. And that's because their role is to essentially re evaluate, review, if you will, uh, whether a decision made by staff or myself or the executive board uh, is correct in keeping with the spirit and the intent of a rule in our handbook or our bylaw. And so it's important that they be independent. They are not the same people who made or adopted a rule. They are sitting basically as neutral parties to evaluate if the rule was correctly interpreted, understood, and applied. Um, we do have meetings of the appeals board, again, as I said, kind of on an on-call basis, uh, once or twice a year. There are It's typical in some years they don't meet, uh, which is, you know, certainly fine. It doesn't mean anything's right or wrong, but uh, it's just, again, the nature of, of whatever controversies might arise. And most re recently, we had a board of directors meeting on September the 17th, and there were two agenda items of which uh, board members got together to discuss and vote on. 
uh, having to do with handbook uh, rules. Uh, one of them was a rule, the Rule 10, a qualified coaches section of the handbook, and that was basically a supplemental editorial change. Yeah, uh, Rule 10 is, is an interesting rule because I think in common parlance, people refer to Rule 10 coaches and they think they're referring to what we would by rule call coach aides. A person who's coaching for a school uh, as an assistant coach or even head coaches after a period of years and completing certain educational requirements. But a Rule 10, our handbook Rule 10 addresses the specifics of how schools employ coaches and that they must be employed and they must be compensated. And what we were doing in this change was, as you said, just editorially updating language uh, as time to time, you know, we do that. And basically trying to make very clear that uh, the schools are the people who employ coaches and compensate coaches. Uh, and they need to be compensated and under the terms of a written agreement, which we now in the language call supplemental contracts. And that is typically how schools, private schools or public schools, employ coaches or assistant coaches or directors of activities, band, teachers, choir, directors, etc., drama coaches. They're, they're all employed through supplemental contracts. Not to get too legal, but this stems back to a 1981 court case in Kansas where the courts separated teaching contracts, the basic teaching contract, away from the supplemental contract of a teacher or a coach. So again, it gets a little bit, you know, couched in, in law, but we just felt like it was probably timely to, to make that clear. And of course, the other thing is that our schools from time to time are put in situations where people talk about, well, I'd volunteer to work for you and I wouldn't, you wouldn't have to pay me. And that would be a violation of our Rule 10. And secondly, perhaps even more problematically, it would put schools in a position where they could potentially violate wage and hour law. And that's not a small issue. That's something that any school board clerk and or school district legal counsel, uh, anyone, superintendents, you know, would certainly not want to take that chance. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's again the Fair Labor Standards Act that people have to be fairly compensated for work that they perform. And there have to be accurate business records kept and documentation. And so coaching is not something that our schools can simply have a volunteer come forward and say, you know, I can't play anymore. I'd like to go help my old high school coach coach the linebackers. Um, not that their intentions are wrong, but I think there's clearly an employer-employee legal obligation, and there are legal ramifications of people. Uh, employers are responsible for the actions of their employees, you know, simply put, and without making this sound like law class 101, uh, that, that's kind of the importance of trying to keep the language current in the rule. Uh, the other item that, that I think uh, was on this agenda, as I recall, was the age rule. And Kansas has, like every state, has an age limit rule. Age rules fundamentally serve a very basic purpose. They are there to protect the integrity of the game uh, or the event or the contest, and they're there to protect the safety of kids who are school-age kids, students, and not somebody that's 25 years old and thinks this is still too much fun, I don't want to quit playing high school ball. Um, it wouldn't be legal, it wouldn't be safe, it would not be sane to do that. So every state has an age limit rule. Kansas had for decades an age limit rule that said September the 1st is the cutoff date 
that if you turn 19 on September the 1st or before, you are too old for high school eligibility. And if you turn 15 before that date, you're too old for 8th grade. And 14 before that date, you're too old for 7th grade. Um, 27, 8 years ago, Kansas began as the first and only state, and I think still only to this day one of two states, that will, under certain circumstances, waive the age rule, given assurances and proof that this young person might not be dangerous to themselves or other people, and the, the, the cause for their excess age is nothing they had control over, and it's not an attempt by people to redshirt a child for athletic advantage, which none of our rules permit in the entire country. Um, Kansas is not unique in that respect. No one has a redshirt rule to let kids have extra years to play their high school sport eligibility because that's not what we're here for. We're here for kids to be students first. Athletics activities are fun. They're enjoyable, but they're a privilege, and they don't or should never become the force that dictates how a child's education proceeds. So, you know, what we did here is effectively move our age limit date from September the 1st forward to August the 1st effective next year. The benefit of that, in my view, is, and I think our board agreed, they voted 67 to 0 in favor of both of these changes, I believe. Uh, but this one, I think they felt the logic was that August 1 in the modern era is more closely you know, related to the start of school and certainly school activities for our students than September 1. There was a time schools in an agrarian-based economy did not start until later in, this, in the fall, after Labor Day was typically the starting point. And probably decades ago, we've really moved away from that. School calendars, school start dates creep earlier, earlier, earlier all the time. So I think it's realistic and logical. I think just intuitively our board felt like it was the right thing to do. So we're not really advantaging or disadvantaging anybody. We're just kind of moving the, the milestone marker date forward um, because it makes better sense to just be quite honest. Right, and he, Gary is correct. Both of those uh, passed by a vote of 67 to 0 at the board director's meeting. These minutes to the meeting will, can be found on our website, uh, Keisha.org, uh, and those will be posted on there as soon as they're available. Um, Gary, we thank you to, to for joining us to mention a few things about how the governing structure is here at the association, and we'll be talking to you later on in the year. We will visit with Gary again as regional administrator meetings are due at the end of October. We'll sit down with him before the meetings are scheduled to kind of preview the agenda for the administrators to, to pay attention to and make sure they come and discuss with their fellow administration. That'll do it for Episode 3. We encourage you to come back and listen for Episode 4 as we'll sit down with David Sherry here in the office to discuss his tour of the state when as regional meetings for Stuco just wrapped up, and we will discuss the regional administrative meetings agenda with Gary. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time.